Welcome to Impacted, the podcast series about research for real change. Each episode showcases researchers here at the University of Sussex and considers the impact their work is having in the world. My name's Suzanne Fisher-Murray. And my name's Will Hood. And today we are featuring Professor James Fairhead. James is a professor of social anthropology at the University of Sussex. His research focuses on environmental and medical anthropology, and he's conducted extensive fieldwork, mostly in West and Central Africa. Okay, yeah, so I'm James Fairhead, and I'm a professor of social anthropology at the University of Sussex. And I've been here at Sussex oh, since 2001. But uh, since the 1990s, I've been working on and off in the Republic of Guinea in West Africa. In 2014, James's research played a crucial role in responding to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, an epidemic with similarities to the current COVID-19 pandemic. Public health responses to both COVID-19 and Ebola require an accurate understanding of human and cultural motivation and behaviour, something that anthropologists, such as James, can help with. When Ebola uh, became a, a crucial issue in 2014, um, I, together with uh, my colleagues Melissa Leach and others at Sussex, built the Ebola Response Anthropology Platform as a vehicle for funneling social, cultural, political uh, advice into the humanitarian response. So today we're going to talk about your work with the Ebola crisis back in 2014, right? But perhaps we could start off by explaining to... um, anyone that isn't sure, James, exactly what uh, anthropology is and why they should care about it. Why is it important? Well, I I suppose anthropology emerged as a study of people on their own terms. So uh, anthropologists live in the communities that they study. And so anthropology uh, is a humble subject that seeks to understand uh, people from their own perspectives rooted in their own world rather than taking in uh, the presumptions that we might have about what makes uh, life tick. I have here in my notes that you've been recently rewriting the early history of the discipline and recovering its more radical roots. Yes. Well, many people sort of trace back anthropology to... uh, the British uh, tradition of social and cultural anthropology that begins with uh, the fieldwork of Bronislaw Malinowski in the Trobriand Islands. But people have been thinking about cross-cultural study and analysis uh, ever since the time of the Greeks and probably before and across the world. And so to properly understand the history of anthropology, we don't need to just go back to our uh, early scholars of the 20th century but sometimes we can go back into the 19th century. If you see anthropology through the lens of Western societies, then we can see it as part of coloniality. But there are many people, for example, uh, Du Bois and others, who had a very different understanding of the nature of society and the social experience, uh, and articulated that well. And in many ways, Uh, those perspectives are now uh, being brought to the fore uh, as we recover a more radical history to the discipline. 
was there a moment for you james uh in your in your youth when a uh, a light went on and you thought this is really important i must spend time with this this is something that i need in my life what what was it that turned you on by this discipline um well i come from a rural farming background in the uk i was a student of agricultural and forestry sciences uh, and i was being taught uh, scientific approaches to agriculture which seemed to me to be highly extractive to get the most out of the land uh, without really thinking about uh, the legacy on the land. And in my encounters in Rwanda uh, back in the 1980s, I saw that there were other ways to think about farming and other techniques which were very different but very interesting and that our science wasn't necessarily the way to understand those practices. So that's what led me to switch from agricultural and forestry sciences to study a master's in anthropology. Fascinating. So other ways to uh, to think about the same subject, that, that, that shift in paradigm is a, is a central part of perhaps the anthropological spirit. Yes, I think it is a capacity to, or an interest in understanding the multiple ways that farming in this instance or anything you care to choose can be understood. 2014 was a significant year for James's research. In March, the Ebola virus hit West Africa and in the ensuing months left more than 11,000 people dead and many more struggling with medical difficulties. What's more, the public health response in the West African countries of Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, Senegal and Nigeria encountered a number of previously unexpected problems. Well, welcome to this uh, last-minute session on Ebola. The aim really here is to have a briefing, to have a discussion, and to bring the expertise of the people in the room together, and to create networks which otherwise might not have been established. The recording you're listening to is of a roundtable discussion convened by James in September of 2014. He, along with a number of researchers with experience in West Africa, met to discuss the situation and what meaningful intervention they might be able to offer. Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea is causing major problems for Senegal and in Nigeria and it risks creating problems much further afield. Fortunately, we have with us one or two researchers who've, uh, in different ways, uh, addressed uh, Ebola and other uh, hemorrhagic fevers, in fact, in the region. As we were meeting in September, Ebola as a disease uh, in the epidemic in West Africa had become exponential uh, and therefore uh, there was no, uh, no end, no understanding of how it might end and where it was leading to. So the outbreak had begun in December 2013 and gone unnoticed for three months, a little bit like COVID has. And then uh, the WHO came, became aware of the epidemic in late March. And from March until September, I'd been monitoring the outbreak, which had begun in the area of Guinea. And it had been contained. But by August, and then especially by this September, that idea of containment was shown to be rather problematic. So, academics are being accused of giving advice, not actual assistance. 
Um, and uh, we stand accused, I suspect, uh, from the region. And this is why we have attempted to put on a round table, at least, that will bring uh, some attention to this crisis. This difference between offering assistance and advice. What specifically could your insights gain from anthropology offer in this circumstance? Well, um, those who were gathered in that room, uh, many of whom were African anthropologists who had studied in West Africa, in Sierra Leone or Liberia or Guinea, as I had done, um, knew the uh, sensitivities that communities had to the international organizations that were likely to or indeed were operating in, in the region. So uh, organizations such as Médecins Sans Frontières and others who were uh, establishing Ebola treatment units were uh, attacked in one or two instances, um, were, were feared by many within the communities of uh, bringing the disease rather than of addressing it. And so some of those local interpretations of what was going on uh, were rooted in historical experience of the European interventions in their areas which were largely extractive relating to mining uh, or timber operations and so on. And so uh, to bring a sense of a local perspective to the humanitarian response seemed to be clearly necessary and it wasn't necessarily going to come from those uh, humanitarian organizations. This mistrust between local groups and humanitarian organizations was beginning to be understood as a major obstacle. And by the beginning of September 2014, the Ebola crisis had escalated to such an extent that a Liberian minister was quoted as saying, Ebola threatens Liberia's national existence. Understanding that efforts to mitigate the spread of Ebola were not working as well as they needed to, the World Health Organization recognized that community engagement is the cornerstone of a more effective response. Where communities take charge, especially in rural areas, and put in place their own solutions, transmissions revert considerably. But that wasn't happening. And one key area where community engagement had broken down with dire consequences was related to that of safe burial practices. Ebola is peculiarly contagious in the days leading up to death and the days soon after death. And so the humanitarian response was focused on reducing transmission at those times isolating people who were very ill and uh, conducting burials in ways that were safe. Now, within the social world in which Ebola was ravaging, death is at the heart of sort of everyday life and respecting people and finding ways to, to look after people after they've died is highly important to the social world. And so uh, the idea of containment of a disease in an epidemic mode uh, through zipping up people in body bags and burying them, sometimes in unmarked graves, was anathema to the forms of respect that people gave to the dead and to the dying uh, in 
those societies, and that led to a great deal of uh, resentment within the communities to the burial teams, and indeed attacks on them. James, you were quoted as saying the Ebola epidemic was as much an epidemic of mistrust as a virus. Can you explain what you mean by that? Um, well, I think the epidemic had a particular geographical uh, course. It tended to flourish in areas uh, that had historically been critical of the current political party in power. They were from regions of the opposition. And the region was quite mistrustful of the, the national government and of the international world that was linked with the national government. Um, so uh, wherever and whenever the epidemic entered into areas that were um, areas of support for the regime in power, um, it actually was very quickly uh, brought under control. But whenever it got into regions of political opposition, it tended to get out of control. And so there was a very real sense in which uh, political trust and mistrust was at the heart of the epidemic as it unfolded. So the initial challenges in containing Ebola are not quite the same as those that we currently face. Many have interpreted that the disease, the medics, the burial, the disinfectant squads, the hospitals, the politicians, the foreign aid workers involved in the response have been deploying and spreading Ebola, not addressing it. Uh, one of the challenges in containing Ebola is that it's... OK, so I want to just touch on one more uh, clash of narratives which you mentioned. I think it's very interesting um, and wouldn't immediately be obvious to people. So again, this is another quote from you. This intrusion by white people in the Ebola epidemic moreover carried all the hallmarks of overt sorcery. Those who arrive have been dressed in suits and masks that are so easily associated locally with the activities of secret societies Eventually, doctors, nurses and burial teams took to dressing in the presence of villagers because their suits provoked attacks. So uh, you seem to be implying by this statement that the teams that were sent in to to help were unwittingly presenting themselves as uh, sorcerer type characters. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's easy for people working in humanitarian responses to imagine themselves to be, um, in a sense, saving the lives uh, and assisting and being welcomed for that into the community, in the communities within which they're working. But they're working in a context where outsiders have been experienced in very different ways historically. And so many of the trappings of the humanitarian response echo much more dangerous world for the communities who are observing them. And so the Ebola treatment units and the locations within which the international uh, medical assistants were, were working were segregated. There was often barbed wire used to protect those communities. People would eat separately. People would travel separately. Uh, so that sense within which what is perfectly normal to the humanitarian world is interpreted as being secretive, separationist, and seeking their own interest uh, is really what we were getting at there. Many of the practices eating 
quietly alone at home rather than inviting in guests, separating yourself off rather than being part of the community. Of These are sort of signs of people who aren't necessarily part of the, the social and moral order of the locality, but are in a sense often a, a threat to it. And the framing within which that kind of threat is understood within this region is often in terms of sorcery. That's a, that's a really crass term for a sense of people having uh, interests at heart that aren't those of the people in, in the community. In order to help with the confusion, mistrust and misunderstanding between humanitarian groups and local communities, James and a number of his colleagues decided to pool their knowledge and resources online and establish the Ebola Anthropology Response Platform. We're going to move on a little bit to the methods that you've adopted for achieving impact. So, I mean, clearly when all of this happened back in 2014, it was a crisis that you knew an awful lot about. So, what were the methods that you and your colleagues used to actually make a a difference on the ground? Well, we first gathered as many people as we could who had expertise of the region and the uh, unfolding social as well as medical problems. Several of the people were able to get to that meeting which was created in a great rush in and around an African Studies Association annual meeting. So I think there was Anne Kelly who'd come from Exeter, and Melissa Leach, who I work with, who uh, is now director at the Institute of Development Studies, and several others. But we, on the back of that, created what we called an Ebola response anthropology platform, which was just the idea of creating a website through which people with particular expertise of particular localities and, and topics would be able to inform uh, through a sort of focal point anyone who was looking for information on those topics and regions. And so quite quickly out of that meeting was born this platform that thankfully the Wellcome Trust and BFID funded to give it some some better uh, functionality. And then through that we drew in anthropologists from Sierra Leone and from Côte d'Ivoire and the wider region. Um, and that enabled us to, to begin to communicate better with the humanitarian world. But what really changed it was the adoption by DFID and, in fact, by Chris Whitty, who was running the UK DFID Ebola response, um, uh, but, uh, who drew us in as a subcommittee of the SAGE committee that was coordinating the UK response to Ebola. So tell, yeah, the, tell, so tell me about the significance of, of becoming a SAGE subcommittee. What, what does that mean and why, why is that a big thing? Well, because we'd formed a focal point through which social and cultural, political uh, commentary could be drawn on and inform the different organisations that were involved. We were almost a ready-made permanent workshop that uh, was able to deliberate questions that arose at the time out of our long-standing research in the region. And so SAGE, which was 
the sort of uh, committee organising the emergency response uh, from the UK and uh, DFID's central role in delivering assistance and in shaping modes of assistance, uh, they found this uh, this group quite useful and co-opted us sort of lock, stock and barrel into their framing. So what, what this meant in practice is that two or three times we went up to London uh, alongside Chris Whitty and others within DFID and across uh, departments uh, and discussed critical issues with them. They raised questions and we uh, then found ways to deliberate and report back on those uh, questions to them. And then as a subcommittee, our responses were then translated up to the basic committee, the, the full committee. At the time of the Ebola epidemic, Professor Chris Whitty was the Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department for International Development. He is now, of course, the Chief Medical Officer for England, the UK government's Chief Medical Advisor at the helm of the nation's strategy to fend off COVID-19. James, I was wondering, do you think that your work and research might have changed the perception of the utility of social sciences you know, as having something to contribute during a crisis? Yes. Uh, well, I'm going to be a little bit more humble than that. You know, the, the 2014 epidemic uh, was brought under control gradually through a whole series of people, you know, the, the medical community, the logistics, the information community, and the social science is just one important part of that. But if you have a humanitarian response without proper rooting in the, the social and cultural world within which it's operating, then it's liable to be very inefficient, if not ineffective. And so I think what we were able to show here and demonstrate is that if you do bring that form of expertise, that uh, you can address some of the, the political uh, challenges. You can address some of the forms of miscommunication. Uh, you can address some of the material um, uh, issues that are getting in the way of trust and, uh, and make a more efficient and a more effective response. Uh, and I think that that was uh, appreciated you know, in the, the subsequent reports. And I think that brought anthropology, which sometimes is considered to be a more academic exercise in the understanding of humanity rather than a discipline that has direct applicability in, in addressing the key challenges of our time. So anthropology exists in the universities in West Africa. It exists uh, in the social science department, university in Syria and at Bay College. It exists. Uh, in universities in Conakry as a discipline and uh, drawing on the anthropological skills and cultural communication skills of those anthropologists I think would have been more feasible had anthropology and the social sciences been better uh, respected for these capacities to meet the challenges and I think one of the legacies perhaps of our work is that organizations aren't just going to respect 
anthropology more seriously, but are going to respect anthropologists from the region more seriously. And I think that that would be a, a fundamental outcome. The Ebola Anthropology Response Platform won the Economic and Social Research Council's Award for International Impact in 2016. That funding was used to support anthropologists and students from Ebola-affected countries. We asked James if he could tell us more about how some of the recipients had used the funding. It was uh, given to students and to some local researchers who weren't just students. And in one study in Guinea, conducted by Dominique Milimuno, who um, we've long known, but who runs his own uh, development research centre. He knew the village where Ebola is said to have come from uh, rather well and was able to use some of that funding to go back to that village to begin to uh, tease apart the narratives uh, within the village about where the disease came from, taking their understanding more seriously. So although medical teams had traced the epidemic back to that village and to a child who was two years old, the villagers actually were rather disbelieving of that narrative, saying that it had been brought by a friend of the family that got ill from Sierra Leone. But that was dismissed by the, the medical establishment because the person had been ill, but not necessarily of Ebola, and had been ill several months previously, and it wasn't then thought that somebody who'd been ill and survived several months before could then be a source of Ebola within a new outbreak. Subsequently, it turns out that that, that is actually feasible. So what Dominique Milimuno was able to do was to begin to uh, trace the, the, the local history of this um, outbreak uh, further back to the visitors to that village. And whilst it remains unresolved as to whether or not uh, Ebola came from the village and from, I don't know, bats or some other source within the village, or whether it came via somebody to that village, well, that, that, that is really an unresolved and rather important question. So... I mean, in this instance, uh, in the report following the UK response, two parliamentary inquiries concluded that the social sciences knowledge that ERAP brought were extremely important in controlling the outbreak. There's certainly a sense that the political body recognises the importance of social science work. Do you think in the present situation... Are there social sciences informing policy at the moment, do you think, with the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, in the COVID-19 epidemic, the same kinds of platforms exist. So the direct legacy of the ERAP platform, SSHAP, and they are doing much the same as we did. Of course, Ebola was contained within three countries, but the response was limited, whereas COVID-19 uh, is clearly a, a global response and so uh, far beyond the capacity of any particular platform to uh, infuse social science into a particular kind of coordinated response. What, what is perfectly clear is that COVID, uh, like Ebola, cuts through you know, political speak. 
also how communities come to engage with COVID is mediated a little bit by that speak. And some of the false assurances uh, have been extremely damaging, leading to forms of distrust as the, of the sort that we've encountered uh, in West Africa as well. So um, this dynamic between containment and the sort of the politics and the social world of the containment and what people in the communities are actually thinking and doing and how they're responding not just um, meekly but also occasionally resisting it's important to, to be aware of that to make a response effective and efficient i think one of the legacies uh, has been the importance of bringing uh, anthropology into an understanding of the changing social world in the UK, how people shop, how people talk about and consider travel. Such things are uh, at the heart of our sort of contemporary response. And they are uh, fundamentally uh, questions that anthropologists can address. Now, I wouldn't say that anthropology has been very, very much drawn on and I think uh, in relation to the COVID-19 epidemic, it could have been drawn on far more powerfully, both in the UK and, and internationally. It's the mistrust, which I think seems to be the important word that would lead people yeah. to conspiracy theories and the whole 5G phone network, you know, being the cause of COVID, which um, it, it's alarming, I think, that... Uh, you would have enough members of a population in, in the UK that would believe, I suppose, that particular strand of, of folklore enough to, to want to cause damage. But I, but I suppose it's, it's the same process, right? It's, um, it's people trying to deal and process narratives and, um, and where they understand the interests of the authority, which is telling them what's going on. I think you said it. You said it just as I would say it, you know, that uh, it's, it's, uh, and, and what is true for the sort of burning down of 5G masks is reproduced in all sorts of other narratives, presumably in, uh, in communities um, on different topics, and because everyone is coming to terms with where this came from, uh, how to protect themselves, uh, where the dangers lie. And, and how people work uh, that out depends very much on historical experience and uh, the everyday world within which people are living. Uh, and we can make assumptions about those worlds. I'm sure people are making many assumptions, but it's much better to base a response on proper knowledge of those worlds.